chapter 11. That is our text for today. But before I jump in, I'm going to ask you a few names, and I just, I wonder your, your thoughts. So if I said, who is Barry Bonds? Some of you would say cheater. Matt and I grew up in a little bit different generation. We watched him in those uh, summer nights, Matt, and hit home run after home run into the bay, right? All-time home run leader, or is he the face of steroid era? Maybe you could think of another person. Who's Pete Rose? Some of you may not know who Pete Rose is, okay? But Pete Rose, for some of you guys, you go, that's the greatest hitter of all time. And others of you would say cheater as well, right? He bet on baseball. He, he's a problem. He, you know, he stole the integrity of the game. What I want you to be thinking about this morning is how do you define a person? What defines a person? Is it what they accomplish or is it what they waste? Is it their accolades or is it their attitudes? Is it what they do with their hands or is it what's in their heart? Are people defined by a few choices that they make in life or the lifetime of character that they display? Uh, do we define or grade people based on their sins or based on their successes? Based on their victories or based on their defeats? What defines a person? We live in a world that is all about cancel culture now where people are defined solely by a tweet or a post that they made when they were 17, by a word that they say in an interview, or by something they are video doing without their consent or knowledge. And forever they are defined as a bigot, as a racist, as a, uh, a, a woman hater, or as this or that. What defines a person? Today we're going to continue in with our study of David, and if I said, what defines David, you could answer the shepherd boy who stood up to the giant, believing his God was greater. You could answer, he is a great warrior who wins many battles. You could answer, he is a great songwriter and poet and magician. You could answer that he is the king, or you may answer that he is the one who committed adultery and then murder. What defines a person? See, David has two stories that we always think of. One from his early years when he was slaying the giant, and then the one from his later years with Bathsheba. And that's what we're going to study today. 2 Samuel chapter 11 starts off this way. Verse 1 says, In the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. When kings go out, David stayed. When kings go out, David stayed. See, spring was the time for battle. The weather had warmed up, but more than that, there was ample food for the soldiers to just eat as they were in the fields. It was the wheat and barley harvest season, and so there was stuff to, food, to feed the soldiers in the army, so it was a good time to go out and to fight battles. 
And David, for the first time in our history that we see, David did not join the men in battle. Now, normally he would go and be in the battle. He's killed so many people in a, in a uh, battle situation. He at least would be at the camp with the men and the soldiers. But here David stayed. And logic says that kind of makes sense for David to stay. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, his men will actually encourage him. We don't need you to go. Go and protect yourself. Stay. We've got this. But David here, it seems as though, at least how the text says it, he chose to stay. Was he still dependent on God and following God, or has the power of the crown reached and infected his choices that he gets to do whatever he wants to do because he is the king? When kings go out, David stayed. Verse 2 through 4, let's read that. It says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired of, about the woman, and, and one said to him, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers. He took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. Let's stop there. To set the scene, David is home. He is in the palace in Jerusalem. The men are out at war. David wakes up from a nap. He was on his couch napping. What are his men doing? Fighting. David wakes up from a nap, and then he is on the second floor of his home. His home would probably have been situated in an elevated position in Jerusalem, overlooking the whole town. He then has a second floor that had a patio or terrace that he would then go out on, and he was walking. And as he is walking, he looks and he sees that there is a woman who is very beautiful. And the text says very clearly, it says very. The Bible doesn't just throw out varies. This woman is strikingly beautiful. And David sees her from his elevated position, and he sees that she is bathing, and so she is naked there. Some writers will try to make an argument that Bathsheba is somewhat at fault because of what she is doing there. Those writers probably would also complain that women must do, they are always seeking to entice men. Now, I want to stop for just a quick moment. Should a female seek by her clothing or her dress to entice men? No, that is wrong. But a man also should have the self-control and the holiness and righteousness within him to see a beautiful woman, but not linger and not lust. David does not do that. See, Bathsheba, I would take the counter-argument there with many commentators saying, David is in that position and he could, like Joseph, flee that situation, but David chooses to stay, to remain he is interested, he is intrigued, and so he goes and does a little bit of investigating. David has had a problem with women in his past. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, it says this, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. 
David becomes king. He gets king over Israel. And you know what? He starts abusing his power as king to increasing his harem of women. That is a direct contrast to what God has said in Deuteronomy, where a king should not increase their own power, should not increase their own wives, and should not increase their own treasury. David is living in direct contrast to what God has said, and that's just with wives. God made no special provision for a king to have concubines. Yet David greatly enjoys the company and intimacy that he finds with women, and he enjoyed the power that the crown bestowed upon him, ignoring the warnings of God and increasing his own pleasures. David looked, he liked, he lusted for, and he laid with many women. It was David's vice. It was the snag in his character. It was the place in his life that he was not willing to wholly give to God. Because the love of pleasure exceeded David's love for obedience. There's a lot of people in this room that could say that exact sentence about themselves. Some of you in this room's love for pleasure exceeds your love for obedience to God. Your longings, your lusts, your indulgence, and what is forbidden is rampant. You do not practice self-control but you pursue whatever excites, entices, or arouses you. The problem for David and the problem for many of you in this room is that one more taste, one more moment, one more look, one more click, one more picture, one more video, one more night out, one more experience will not change your appetite and desire. It will only increase it. And so many of people in this room and in churches all around and in neighborhoods around us are so caught up in this compulsion, in this addiction to pleasure, that it is overriding our logic because lust is stronger than our logic. And we may promise over and over, never again, and yet you know that you're only saying that to appease your conscience and let you get through this one more experience. This is not an ancient story 3,000 years ago. This is a very real and prevalent issue right now. And for some of you in this room, you know this is you. David seeks, sees and seeks out what is forbidden. Some of you may go, well, where did the sin start for David? Was it sinful for him to be walking on his second floor patio? No. Was it sin that this temptation was presented to him by this beautiful woman? I don't think so. Sin begins when David lingers. When David allows for that lust to take hold. When David starts seeking out, who is this woman? How can I get to know her? We will be faced with temptation, but like Joseph, when Potiphar's wife is coming on to him, and enticing him, we must flee. That is the only prescription against sexual sin and temptation, fleeing. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. The only prescription, the only remedy for sexual sin is to flee the situation. Continuing on, um, let's see. 
David inquires. He is told, most likely or typically what would happen is you would say, Carlin is the uh, daughter of Rick, is the granddaughter of so-and-so, is the great-granddaughter of so-and-so and so-and-so, and and that is how you go back in a lineage, but it changes. It says, this is Bathsheba, I think verse 3, she is the daughter of Eliam, one of your great fighters, David I think would probably have known him, he's praised of his value, how tough of a fighter he is, and then Uriah, the Hittite, the wife. So it goes forward instead of backwards. Uriah will be listed at the end of 2 Samuel as one of the 30 men that were the special forces or the best fighters in David's army. Uriah would have been known, in my full belief, by David. But he doesn't care. The real truth that's coming to David is that she is married. He is, she is the wife of Uriah, but David cannot be dissuaded He wasn't asking, is she single? He was asking, do you know who she is so she can be brought here? David is now abusing his power, and I think many could argue he is abusing this woman who is in no position to say no to what he desires. He covets and takes what is not his, and the story doesn't end there, though. Verse 5, the woman conceived, and she sent to David and told him, I am pregnant. David now has a problem on his hand. She's pregnant and her husband's at war, 40 miles away. Well, how'd that happen? The rumor mill would begin, right? How many people did she tell that she had seen David? How many people saw her walking to the palace that day? How many of his servants had spoken of, oh yeah, you wouldn't guess who's here today, Bathsheba? David has a real problem because he's got a woman that is married, pregnant, and her husband's nowhere to be found. He can't cover it up. And adultery is not a small sin. It may be normalized in our culture now. We probably all know people who have walked that path. There's probably some in this room. But adultery is not a small sin. No sexual sin is a small sin. And we as the church must stop picking and choosing which ones we are violently opposed to and which ones we sweep under the rug. As a church and as believers, we must display that no sexual sin is allowed. Purity is the only focus. Sorry, I know I'm serious today, but this is a serious topic. David knows the penalty of adultery is death. And so David has to have a plan to save his life. This is what we realize. Sin is not static. It doesn't remain stationary. It doesn't stay isolated. Sin will spiral deeper and deeper, darker and darker, more detestable every time. I know that in my struggles and my past with sexual sin, it it is not something you can just give a moment to because it will take you deeper and deeper and darker and darker. Like any drug, what was enough last time will not be enough this time. There's a fantastic quote. It says this. It's on the screen. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. 
Here's the extremely sad irony of that statement. It was made by a man named Ravi Zechariah, who, if you know that name, was a great Christian apologist who also, around his death, or maybe just after his death, a four-month investigation concluded that, learned that Mr. Zechariah, who was a world-famous Christian apologist, would abuse massage therapists in the United States and abroad using his travel as a Christian speaker to allow him to abuse people in other countries and get away with it. Sin took him farther than he wanted to go, kept him longer than he wanted to stay, and cost him more than he wanted to pay. Friends, the power of sin, especially sexual sin, is so destructive that it will destroy your marriage, it will destroy your family, it will destroy your careers, it will destroy your life. If you give it an inch, it will take a mile. David has a problem, and the sin spiral begins. Verse 6 says this, So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David, and when Uriah came, David asked Joab, how is, or he asked Uriah, how's Joab doing? And how are the people doing? And how's the war going? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. David's got a problem. He's impregnated a, a woman whose husband's far away, so he needs to get them together somehow and hope people aren't real good at math. He needs to get them together, and so he calls Uriah back. It makes no sense to call Uriah back when there are messengers and runners going back and forth. He is asking Uriah to make a 40-plus mile journey just so that he can make this small talk with him. So how's the war going? How are the men holding up? David doesn't care. He just needs cover. So then he says, oh, Uriah, thanks for the update. Why don't you head home, go and enjoy intimate hospitality, her washing your feet, and see where that leads. David even sends a gift with him. I mean, he's a hotel manager saying, here's some chocolates and champagne. All he doesn't do is put rose petals out and turn the towels into swans. He's setting the mood for him here. But Uriah, verse 9 slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to the house. David asked him the next day, verse, he's, David's confused, and he goes and asks him, why? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall then I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. That sounds a lot like David, doesn't it? David's looking into a mirror in some ways, his best version. As Uriah says, no, I've got deep convictions. I've got a deep commitment, and I've got strong character. I'm not doing this. David tries again. He gets, Joe, I mean, he gets Uriah drunk at the palace. Hey, come enjoy this banquet. Now, hopefully your inhibitions and your convictions have been... Um, Melted away? Why don't you go to your home now? Again, Uriah would not. So David is stuck. Here's the sad reality. Somebody's got to die. Somebody's got to die. Uriah or David? 
is really what it boils down to. Someone has to die because the pregnancy is going to be found out. He cannot convince Uriah. And so, verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent by the hand of Uriah. Do you see how logic is lost now as he is trying to cover his sin? He is sending this note by the hand of Uriah. What does it say? Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. But not only that, don't make it an accident. Then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David sends a death notice by the hand of the person he wants dead. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. It's an interesting situation, really quickly, because the, the people have besieged Ramah. They are surrounding this fortified city. And so really, Israel is not fighting right now. They're just waiting. The people are holed up in this uh, city with no way out, and the Israelite army has surrounded it. They can go and get whatever they need, fresh water, fresh food, fresh fruits, whatever. They have access to that. All they are waiting for are the people of Ramah to either surrender or starve to death. There's no fighting. There's no need to fight. And David says, well, hang on, we, we need you to start fighting because I need Uriah to be killed. Verse 17, the men of the city came and they fought with Joab and some of his servants of David, and some of the servants of David fell. Uriah the Hittite died also. Do you see the collateral damage of David's choice to take what was not his? Not only does Uriah die, but other innocent men die. A message is sent to David telling him, and Joab says, hey, if he gets mad that we've lost some soldiers, make sure to tell him Uriah the Hittite is dead. It'll, it'll take away his anger. It does. Verse 25, David sends a message back to Joab. Do not let this matter displease you, David says to Joab. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack, Joab, against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. In a sense, David goes, oh, well, War's war, people die. Calloused to the cover-up. Verse 26 and 27 to end the chapter. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and he brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Bathsheba laments her husband. She mourns his death. She's now trying to figure out how am I going to respond now as a widow in a male-dominated society. David sins and chooses and almost demands her to marry him. Again, did she really have a choice? Especially not now as she has a family to take care of as a widow. On the outside, here's the scariest part, guys. On the outside, David would be commended for marrying Bathsheba. Sounds like his great-grandfather, Boaz, a redeemer of this widow. Not to bring up that he caused her to be a widow and he caused her to be in this situation. He would be commended as this great man of character whose soldier dies and he, as the king, chooses to love her. But God was not fooled. He was displeased. 
So I go back to the question that we ask at first. What defines a man or a woman? Is it their accolades or their accomplishments? Is it their success or their sin? Is it their flaws or their failures? Is it their victories or is it their defeat? Pete Rose is not in the Baseball Hall of Fame because of his choices to bet on baseball. Barry Bonds is not in the Baseball Hall of Fame because of his choice to use steroids. Both of these men disqualified themselves from the greatest achievement any baseball player could have because of their actions. Should David be disqualified? I got to thinking this week, how is David defined in the New Testament? The people that know both stories, all the stories. It says this in Acts chapter 13, that it says, God raised up David. I'll go a little bit further back. It says, and when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, and he will do my will. And catch this next verse, verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. God didn't disqualify David. He wasn't surprised by his adultery, by his scheming, or by his indirect murder. Yet, before David was crowned and even after David was king, and all of these things happened, David is still defined as a man after God's own heart. Here's the amazing thing, guys. When we come to faith in our God, when, when we confess and believe, when he opens our eyes and our mind to the truth and to his grace, when we trust that the work of the cross is enough, we are saved. Final answer. We are no longer defined by our sins, but we are defined by Christ's work alone. In that moment, you are moved from sinner to son in the eyes of God, and you are adopted into the forever family of God, and it cannot be revoked. By our estimation, David should be done. I mean, if next week I wasn't here and Suzanne and Matt and Joanne walked up onto the stage as our personnel committee and said, Guys, we hate to report this, but this week we have found out that Jordan has committed adultery and then schemed to murder the husband of his mistress. I've disqualified my opportunity to be your pastor. I should be disqualified of this position. I should be disqualified of being able to do this, and I may never again have that chance but I am not disqualified from the family of God. God still loves me. That's really hard to understand, isn't it? It's really hard. We don't like it, but it's vital to understand. Why is it vital? Because your sin may not be as extreme as adultery and murder, hopefully, there's going to become a day where you feel like your sin passes the threshold of too much. 
that you've done too much, too much wrong. You've sinned too awfully. You've done this over and over again. And you're going to have to ask the question, can God forgive me of all that I have done? Will he forgive me of all that I have done? And we need to understand that our God forgives every sin and every bit of it. Do you believe that? Or have you disqualified yourself from being loved by God, from being accepted by God, from being a son and daughter of God? I like to say it this way as succinctly as I can. You cannot disqualify yourself from what you were never qualified, what you never qualified yourself for. If you're like me, you wonder if your scorecard with God is good enough to be accepted by God. But that puts it on you and saying that you saved yourself or you keep yourself saved. You cannot disqualify yourself from what you never qualified yourself for. I am not in any means giving anybody a pass to go and sin so that grace may abound. Read Romans chapter 6 for that. That's a complete misunderstanding of God's grace and mercy. But believers, because believers do not willingly abuse the grace of God and live in, in constant and direct opposition to him. But this statement is very true. You cannot disqualify yourself from what you never qualified yourself for. You're not going to be kicked out of the family of God. You may lose position. You may lose your family. You may lose, and there's consequences to our sin. Absolutely. But our salvation is not up for grabs. One more place I want you to look that really puts that into perspective. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 starts off with a genealogy. Matthew is listing all of the people who, uh, who are in the family tree or one line of the family tree of David. And he's going man by man by man, sometimes adding in women too, to, to show this is the story that God has done. And you would think that it's the most devout, the most God-fearing, the most God-honoring people. Verse 5, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Just in those two verses, we see Rahab, a prostitute or at least a madam. We see Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabite woman. We see David, an adulterer and a murderer. We see Uriah, his name come up. This is the lineage of Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah, the one that will bring hope and healing to all the world. And he could have used any of the wives of David because he had plenty, and yet he chose Bathsheba. Here's what we need to understand very clearly. The promises that we studied and learned about last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7 are not disqualified by the choices of this week. The promises of God are not disqualified by the choices of his people. God doesn't give up on David. He doesn't stop using David. David's not just a failure cast off into a wasteland. David is still used as a, plays a part in bringing about salvation, reminding us once again that our salvation is not based on what we have done or what we will do. It is based solely on who our God is and what he does. 
As believers, we must be people who are constantly combating sin. We'll talk about that next week. But we also must understand very clearly that if we rely solely on our battle with sin, if we allow our scorecard with sin to determine our standing before God, we've already lost before we started. We are His because of what His Son did. We are His because of His great love that while we were still sinners, He loved us. We are His only by His works because no one is righteous, no, not one. We are His because He adopted us. If you want to define yourself by worldly success or the works of your hands or the deeds that you have done, I'm sorry to tell you, it's going to fail you. Some of you in this room, I want to end right here. Sorry, I know it was long today. It just had to be. Some of you in this room are very tempted to define yourself by your sins. Your addictions, drugs or alcohol or sexuality, your past and your history, your need for money or approval or affirmation or advancement, And these become the scorecard of your standing with God. When you do good, you are happy and God is happy with you. When you do bad, he is upset with you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want you. He will not use you. Friends, I've been there. I'll be very honest with you. There was a season early or during my college days where I kept a small whiteboard in my sock drawer a whiteboard and an expo marker. And I was deep in battling against sexual sin, and every single day I would either make a check mark, meaning I was good today, I had made good choices and experienced self-control, or I put an X, meaning that I succumbed to the temptation that was before me. And I would mark that whiteboard daily with checks or Xs. And then I would look at it. And what was on that whiteboard determined how I felt God felt about me. And friends, that is a complete misunderstanding of our great God. Because if you have the arrogance to think that enough checks makes God, you deserve God's love, you don't understand it. And if you think too many X's means you've disqualified yourself from God's love, You don't understand it. No one is righteous. No, not one. It took me years to understand that I am always going to be a stumbling sinner, but God loves me. It took me years to accept that he calls me son. It took me years to truly love that I am not, to learn that I am not loved because of what I've done, but because of who he is. It's with great pride that I can confess that God has brought victory in so many of those places for many years. But I am not arrogant to believe that I am above temptation either. None of us are above temptation or the pull that God or that Satan will try to work on you. That's the story of David and Bathsheba. I try to be as honest as I can with you guys when we encounter the text of God, because these are real issues that many real people are going through, and they're really in this room. If you are struggling in any way with an addiction to anything, 
please know that my phone is ready to talk with you. My door is always open. My email is ready to schedule a time to meet. Do not fight alone. Do not struggle alone. Do not live in the state of covering it up like David did because it spirals into a lot of collateral damage. Confess, repent, be accountable, and walk with people through this. We will talk about more of that next week. Let me pray as we close. Dear God,